We are going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let me read for you the word of the Lord. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. So as Pastor Tony prayed just a few moments ago, we all know that this is Memorial Day weekend, and tomorrow is Memorial Day, and along with that, most Americans will have the opportunity to, to take a day off, and it's no surprise that a lot of Americans look forward to days like Memorial Day from the standpoint of being able to take time off from work, because I don't know if you know this, but if you run the numbers, and I did, uh, if you work between the ages of 18 and, and 68, so for 50 years, and you work full-time, during those 50 years, you will have spent half of your waking hours working. Now, if you live to be 76 and you retire at 68, things get a little bit better because that will mean then you have only lit, um, had 25% of the entire waking hours of your life spent at work. When you consider those things, you understand why people enjoy their days off. And uh, sometimes when you talk about work like that, you know, we can get a little depressed. So let me just lighten the mood for, for just a moment um, by saying, do you know one of the worst jobs that you can possibly have? Like one of the worst jobs that you could have is to, to work in a calendar factory. And do you know why? Do you know why? Because there's uh, no days off. Because uh, it's, it's a calendar factory. Wow, okay, so let's work on that. Let's see here. So you know then also why the scarecrow got promoted, right? But why his boss promoted the scarecrow? Do you know this? Oh, because he was outstanding in his field. Oh, okay, there you go. Just want to lighten, lighten the mood. Okay, so work. Work is actually going to be the topic that we're going to be looking at today. But going backwards, we spend so much... Oh, no, no more. Uh, we spend so much... So much of our lives working, you know, when you come to the scriptures, one of the things that some people find interesting is that it appears, at least at first glance, that while so much of your life is involved in a workplace and in work relationships, it seems like there's not a lot that the scriptures actually have to say about work. In reality, though, passages like our one this morning actually do speak to the topic of work. Now, if you paid close attention, our passage started with these words. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, that word bondservant is a Greek word doulos, and it can be translated a lot of different ways. In the ESV, it's translated as bondservant. In other translations, it could be translated slave. Neither of those two terms seem to have anything to do with, with work because, because the idea of, of slavery, when we think of somebody being a slave, we have pre-Civil War America comes, comes to mind. And, and so if Paul is addressing a situation like that, that really doesn't impact you or I. 
But what I want to show you this morning is that actually this text does have something to say to us because this idea of a bondservant or a slave that, that Paul is speaking to is vastly closer to our experience in the workplace today than we might think at first. But if we're going to handle this passage well, if we're really going to have to understand what Paul says here, we got to take a step back. We got to take a step back and we have to address the issue of slavery and Christianity in general. Because as I just said, this, this passage talks about bond servants, and that word can be translated slave. And so we have to talk about the fact that slavery existed in the world in which Paul lived, and slavery existed in the Old Testament and amongst the people of God. And so slavery has a very complicated history with Christianity. In fact, when you look back upon Christian history and even history within our own country, people often used the Bible and passages like this to promote slavery even in America. And so do we actually know what the Bible says about slavery? Like, is Paul, because he's addressing slaves or bondservants in this passage, is he actually um, condoning slavery or the slave practice? Well, here's where I want to be abundantly clear. I want to first address two points for all of us to be clear on slavery in the Bible. The first is this. God condemns. God condemns the enslavement of people. Without equivocation, without any debate, God's word is clear that the enslavement of human beings, the forced servitude of another person, is in the eyes of God a sin. And we know that because did you know that Paul actually had already said that in 1 Timothy? Way back in chapter 1, if you remember when we were there towards the start of the year. Paul wrote these words in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy. It's really fascinating. I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So Paul says, God's law has been given and it reveals those who are sinners and disobedient, those who are ungodly. And who are those people? Well, he goes on to tell us, listen to who the sinners are. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, hope that one's obvious, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Did you see the word right there in the text? You want to know who a sinner is? You want to know who God sees as disobedient, as unholy, as ungodly? It's the enslaver. And the word that Paul uses there to refer to the enslaver is the word that is used of someone who kidnaps and forcibly puts another person into servitude. There's no disagreement. There's no argument. That's what an enslaver is. That's how that word was used. Paul comes inspired by God and he condemns as sinners those engaged in the enslavement of another human being. Now, where did Paul get that idea from? Why does Paul say that? Well, Paul said it because God said it to the people of Israel first in Exodus 21, 16. 
God, when he was laying out the law for the people of God, how they were to live as his people in the land, he said, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. To enslave another human being, someone created in the image of God, and to force them into servitude for you or anyone else was a heinous sin. Church, God condemns the enslavement of people. And I want to show you this point for a very simple reason and then make this point. Based upon what God's word says very clearly, when we look at our nation's history and we see the slavery that was practiced here in America, it falls under the category of the enslavement of people. And so again, without any doubt, God condemns and calls a sin the slavery that took place in America. It was sin, it was wrong, it was the enslavement of individuals, and without a doubt, we as a church can say that was sin, and those who engaged in it were sinning. There's just no way to get around it. So God does condemn very clearly the enslavement of people. Now, here's where things, though, get a little bit more complex. They get more complex, but just because something's complex doesn't make it contradictory. And sometimes people read the Word of God, and it's hard to understand, and they justify certain things because they can't fully explain it. But just because something is complex or complicated doesn't mean that it's contradicting what God's Word says elsewhere. Because when you go all the way back into the Old Testament, when you go to passages like Leviticus 25, you see that while God condemns the enslavement of people, when he was giving his law to Israel, when he was establishing for his people how they were to live in the promised land, he did come and he did say to his people that a certain form of servitude or slavery was acceptable. When you come to Leviticus 25, here's what you discover. God permitted a certain form of servitude or slavery, and I'll tell you why I use those two words kind of interchangeably, as a way to take care of the poor. See, now when you and I hear the word slavery, again, we immediately think of the slavery of, of pre-Civil War America, and, and I want you to understand that the word slavery was used in a wide variety of ways throughout human history. It, it didn't always mean the same thing, which is why in our text this morning, Paul addresses the people there as bondservants, although that same word could be used as a word translated as, as slave, because as we're going to see, slavery meant different things at different times. And so we've got to be careful to understand what's the context that we're talking about. We already know that words mean different things depending upon their context. My brother Aaron likes to use this illustration when talking about this. He's a, he's a pastor in Kentucky, and, and he says, you know, could you imagine if I came to you today and I said, you want to go with me to the Cardinals game tonight? You want to go to the Cardinals game with me tonight? Now, depending upon where you live and what time of year it is depends on what I'm talking about. Because there are many different sports teams with the name Cardinals. If we were living in St. Louis, and it was the fall, and I said, you want to go to the Cardinals game, you'd immediately think, oh yeah, he's inviting me to the Cardinals baseball game. If, though, we were living in Louisville, Kentucky in the fall, and I said, you want to go with me to the Cardinals game, I'm most likely referring to the Louisville University 
Cardinals basketball team. And if we're living in Phoenix and it's the fall, and I say, you want to go to the Cardinals game? I'm talking about going to watch a football game. Those are vastly different things, vastly different experiences in vastly different places. But they're still using the same word. It's the Cardinals to describe a sports team. Sadly, or maybe just the way it is, the word slavery is thrown around to refer to a wide variety of socioeconomic working conditions. And so even in the Old Testament, people say, you know what? God actually condones and promotes slavery in the Old Testament. And they go to passages like Leviticus 25. But look at the passage with me. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your, mother, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at an interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you, listen to this, and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now, do you hear what's happening there? I don't know about you, but if I hear of somebody selling themselves to another person, that sounds a lot like slavery, doesn't it? Now, that's what's they typically look to do with a slave, selling yourself. In the Bible, actually, God says that a man could sell himself to another man. And in another passage, it talks about you could even sell a member of your own family. Some of you are thinking, I know exactly who that would be. But listen, <laughs> this, though, is not the slavery of pre-Civil War America. This is not the slavery of even Paul's day. Because did you listen? Did you listen and hear that if I were to sell myself to you, First, you were to not treat me as a slave, but as a hired worker. Second, I'm not in your debt. I am not to serve you forever. The text clearly says that on the year of Jubilee, you are to set me free. God had ordained for his people that every seventh year, a person was released from having sold themselves to someone else. God's very clear that if I sell myself to you, it is for a season. That season will come to an end. I am not your servant forever. Not only are you to treat me with care, but there is a time where I and my family would be released. In fact, other passages are very explicit. As Exodus 21.16 says, while I could sell myself to you for a season in order to pay off my debts, you cannot kidnap me and force me to be your slave. You're not to abuse me. If you were to kill me or I were to be killed in your service, you yourself would be put to, to death. And it also goes on to say that when I was released from you in that year of Jubilee, you are to allow me to return to my own land, to my own inheritance. I am to get those things back. Does that sound anything like slavery in America? That's not the same situation. 
God permitted, church, a certain form of servitude in the Old Testament as a way to take care of the poor. This was God actually being gracious to his people to help them in the land. Now, the Bible, it clearly condemns the enslavement of people. We also see here that God permits certain people to sell themselves into servitude for a season. And a lot of people have wondered, well, when you come to the New Testament, though, and you read 1 Timothy, and you see that Timothy actually condemns those who enslave other people, why on earth when we read 1 Timothy chapter 6, does Paul give instructions to those who are serving as slaves or as, as bond servants? Why doesn't he tell them to throw off their shackles and to, to run away from their enslavers? And this is because, once again, the situation in ancient Rome, in the Roman Empire in Paul's day, was vastly different from not only slavery in America in our past, but also even Hebrew servitude as we see. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, this form of, of being a bondservant, slavery in the Roman Empire was part of the socioeconomic structure of the workforces that existed. There wasn't really this idea that, that you were just purely a hired hand. Most estimates say that in Paul's day, anywhere from 50 to 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves or were bond servants. Some estimates say that in Rome itself, at this time, there was potentially up to two-thirds of the people living in the city were slaves. And, and so when we're thinking about slaves, we're not thinking about slaves from the same way that we view slavery here in America and what it was like for slaves who lived here. In fact, what we can say about slavery in Paul's day was, while someone who was a bond servant or a slave could be abused by their master, and while they were in the care of their master, was considered to some degree that person's property, we know that many of the slaves who became slaves did so because it was the only way that they could actually gain Roman citizenship or to enter into Roman society by ultimately selling themselves into slavery, working for their masters long enough so that they could ultimately purchase their freedom and be identified as Roman citizens. And in many cases, we see that this was the only way in which someone who was poor could ultimately elevate their standing in society or create a stable and secure living for them and their families. Many of them were managers, they were cooks, they were teachers, they were craftsmen. Some slaves were even government officials. Many slaves even owned their own slaves. And on top of this, if you were walking down the street, you wouldn't be able to identify just by dress always who was the slave and who was not. The social status of some slaves was actually at time equal to that of their masters. Now, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture here, but what I want to make clear is that it was a vastly different situation than what we think about when we think about slavery here in America. These people often entered into this slavery because it was the only means that they could provide for themselves or their families. They were, in a sense, enslaved because without that work, they would be destitute. They wouldn't have any means of providing. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. 
while we don't have something like this in America today, while our socioeconomic structure doesn't have a quote-unquote category for slave or indentured servitude, how many times have you heard somebody say that I feel like I'm enslaved to my job? How many times have you heard somebody say, I can't quit my job? And they say, I can't quit my job because they know that that job is providing for them the financial resources that they need, and they maybe don't have the skill set, they don't have the abilities. The economy is such that if they were to leave their job, they would find themselves just as destitute and in just as much financial trouble as a Roman slave would do if they themselves hadn't been sold into slavery. I think a lot of Americans, even today, although now we have a welfare system that is somewhat of a cushion, I find as I talk to people that many people stay in the jobs that they're in, not because they love, enjoy, and appreciate their jobs and their bosses, but because they realize this is the only thing that I can do. And I'm worried about my economic state if I don't stay in this, in this job. So when Paul writes here, and he writes what he does in verses 1 and 2, the situation that he is writing to with these bondservants and these slaves has some application for us. It carries over in many ways. And the first thing that Paul says, look at the verse again. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Paul's instruction, church, is pretty straightforward. He says that we, as God's people, in the places of work where he has us, are to recognize and show ultimately honor to those who are over us. And this word here for showing honor is the exact same word that he used last week when he talked about showing double honor to those who, who work in ministry as pastors and as elders. And that word for honor, it, it has two meanings. It, in, depending upon how the word is used in the one context, it can talk about giving <coughs> financial compensation to the person who's doing work for you. But it can also refer to simply showing and demonstrating the worth and the value, giving respect to the individual. And that's what Paul's talking about here. What he's saying here is God's people, we are to honor, to show honor to those who are in authority over us. We are to show honor to those that we work for. Now, if I were to do a poll here and ask you, well, what does that look like? What does it mean to show honor to somebody? I joked last week, is it about going up to your boss each week, you know, when you come in at work and you go to their office, knock on the door, and you bow down and you say, oh, boss, I will kiss your ring. Is that what it's about? I think the best way to think about what honor looks like is thinking about what it looks like to not show honor. To not show honor would be to cut someone down. To show honor is to express their worth and their value and if you do not treat them as having worth and value, then you ultimately look to cut them down. You sin against them. It's to treat someone in a dishonoring way would be to lie to them, to berate them, as we saw earlier, to cut them down, to cheat them. When Paul wrote to Titus, who is a pastor of the church in Crete, he gives us a little picture of what he means here. 
writing to bond servants in that church, he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul's instruction back then is the same today. As God's people, we are to honor those that we work for and pay close attention, church, to his instruction. What I mean when I say pay close attention to his instruction, does Paul not say that we behave in this way only with righteous and good masters or employers? Does Paul say only show honor to those who are worthy of it? No, he says, show honor to your masters. He doesn't give a qualifying thing about only showing honor to those who are, who are righteous and those who are holy. What Paul is getting at for all of us is just because you're in a situation that you do not prefer or in a situation where your employer is even sinning against you, the heart of this instruction is this. That does not give you the right. It does not mean that you can justify ceasing to function as a follower of Jesus Christ, ceasing to demonstrate to that individual who is over you the fruit of the Spirit, just because they might not be a follower of Jesus, just because your situation might be harsh, Paul isn't coming and saying, you can just, well, you don't have to show them the light of Christ. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. And so Paul is asking the question, will you show your boss faithfulness? Will you show gentleness? Will you show self-control? Will you show patience? You want to know what it looks like to honor? That's what it looks like to live out Christ in your workplace. Just because someone is not treating you fairly, just because someone is not a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean you have the excuse in your place of work to cease showing Christ-likeness to them. Now, we have to recognize that Paul isn't coming to you and me and he's saying, listen, if you're in a hard situation, it doesn't mean that you grieve that. You can grieve a hard situation. A difficult boss, they can exhaust you, they can frustrate you. And Paul isn't saying as well that if you have a very difficult situation that you're dealing with, that you shouldn't look to leave that working condition He's not saying that you have to just stay there and bear up in it no matter what. He would later write to the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians 7.21, he writes to bondservants, and he says, listen, if you have an opportunity to pursue your freedom, but to gain it in the honest and right way, you ultimately should. But Paul's greatest concern, God's greatest concern for you and for me is that no matter how difficult our situation, whether we feel like we're getting the honor that we deserve or not, we are to demonstrate the Spirit of Christ 
to those that we serve under. And slaves in Paul's day, man, if they became a Christian and they learned that Jesus Christ was their master, they could faultily think that that meant that, oh, Jesus is my master. Forget my earthly master. I only got to care about what Jesus says to me. And Paul says, guard against that. Honor those who are in authority over you. And if you notice in the rest of verse 1, he tells us exactly why church this is so important. The very reason, the very condition why we do this. Look at the rest of verse 1. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Two points. Two points that Paul says for us to take in as to why we are to honor those in authority over us. Honor those that we work for to show them Christ. And the first is this. He says so that the name of God would not be reviled. God wants you to regard your boss as worthy of all honor so that his name will not be reviled. Whenever you hear that, when you hear about God's name, God's name, what's he talking about here? He's talking about God's character, his holiness, his love, his justice, and all the rest of his attributes. The idea being that you and I, if we have a disrespectful attitude towards our boss, it can smear God's reputation. So if you're taking notes, there's these two little arrows at the end of your paper. The first note that you need to make is this. Your behavior magnifies or detracts from God's glory. That's what Paul's saying. We function in honoring our bosses in this way because how you live and work, it can either magnify, that is to make much of the God we proclaim to serve, or it can detract from God's glory. Because church family, here's the deal. We are God's representatives. If you've ever seen the movie Miracle, it's the movie about the 1980 Olympic hockey team. They went on to defeat the Russians in the gold medal game. It was a great, you know, patriotic kind of a thing. In there. And their coach was a man by the name of Herbie Brooks. And Herbie Brooks one day was with the team after they had just lost a preliminary game leading up to the Olympics. And he's trying to get the team together. He's trying to, trying to make them function as a team. And they lose the game. And rather than sending them back to their dorm for the night, he's like, practice. He's like, we're going to run a drill. The drill is now known as, a, as the Herbies. And here's what the drill is. You'd start at the goal line. And what you do is you skate as hard as you could to each line. Stop, skate back to the goal line, skate to the next center line all the way back to the next line, all the way back, and then to the far goal line, and then all the way back. Doing that one time is exhausting. Herbie had them do it over and over again. And every so often, they would get one, done with one round of Herbies. He would blow his whistle, and he would stop. And they'd be like, Whew. and he went up to a player on the team, and he, and he grabbed him, and he said, who do you play for? Now, all these young guys had just gotten out of college. And he grabs a guy, and he says, who do you play for? University of Minnesota. It's like, again. And he blows it, and they do it again. And after they finish another one, he grabs another guy. He's like, who do you play for? And the other guy says, University of Minnesota. I heard that already. Go again. And he does it. And they keep doing this. Every time that they stop, he would ask them, who do you play for? And they'd always give the name of their college team till finally after a few hours of this, and the kids are, you know, throwing up from exhaustion, Mike Uruzioni, the captain of the team, 
they stop, and before anybody can say anything, he says, he says, I play for Team USA. And he's like, that's it, practice is done. And they all go off because that's what he was looking for. What he was looking for was this, who do you play for? They had identified themselves with their college teams, and he's not, that's not what he wanted. Herbie Brooks didn't want him to identify with their college team. He said, I want you to understand that you play for Team USA. That name on the front of your jersey, as you go out, that's who you represent. What Paul is doing here is he's telling us the same thing. We are the people of God. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So when we go out into the world, we are to be God's representatives. We are to display the character and the personhood of God to those that we come in contact with. And he says, listen, if you go into the workplace and you proclaim to be the people of God, and yet the people that you serve, the people that you work for, when you engage them, they do not see that there is anything different in your life. Don't you understand that what you do in the workplace, it will either magnify the God you serve or it will detract from his glory. Christian, every time you make a delivery, turn in a project, hand in an expense report, make a decision at a board meeting, push to get a sale, take care of a patient, mop floors, great exams, we are making a statement about who Jesus is. And the question is, what statement are we making? Is the God we serve worthy of glory and honor, or is he not? Paul is saying, take it seriously. This isn't a flippant thing to consider how you do your work. Whether you eat or drink, Paul would write, or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. But it's not just that. It's not just that how you and I work either makes much of or detracts from God's glory. Look at the second part of the verse. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He says that the teaching may not be reviled. What's Paul talking about here? What he's talking about here is this. Your behavior can help or hinder the proclamation of the gospel. It's not just about displaying God to the world. It's about your behavior helping or hindering the proclamation of the gospel. We believe a message. We believe a gospel that says this. Our God is a perfect God who created us to be in relationship with him, to have relationship with him, to be his image bearers in the world. But we, through our actions, rebelled against him. And now we find ourselves not as image bearers, but image distorters. We are in our sin and we need a savior. But the message of the gospel says that Jesus Christ came into the world. And what did he do? He died for the sinner to restore us to relationship with God. And that passage in 2 Corinthians really sums it up. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The apex, the pinnacle of the message of the gospel is to the glory of God. He saves us and he redeems us and he makes you and I today, not just in some future day. There is a glorification to come, but today we become new creations. The old has passed away. The message of the gospel is that he redeems and he makes new. Now, picture this with me. If you and I go into the world 
and saying, there is a God who has saved and redeemed sinners through his son Jesus Christ and makes them new, then our action and our behavior should demonstrate that newness that has come to us. Yet if we proclaim that message, church, and we go out into the world and our actions, our speech, and our conduct look no different than the world. Do you see why Paul says that's why the teaching can be reviled? Because you claim to be these people and yet you look no different and there is no change. Your work is no different. Your conduct in your work is no different. There's no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control in your conduct. Kent Hughes, who's a pastor in Chicago for many, many years, he talked about an experience that he had that perfectly illustrated what this was like. He came to work for a boss, and the boss found out very early on that Kent was a Christian, and he just rolled his eyes. He says, really, you're one of those? He says, I will never become a Christian. And Kent's like, well, I got to ask why. He's like, oh, I'll tell you why. He said, I had two guys just like you. And Kent kind of took offense to that. He's like, just like me, what do you mean? He said, there were these two guys who came to work for me. They went to that seminary that you're going to. These two guys, were, they went to that seminary. They were training to be pastors. And they came to work for me. And he said, they were the worst workers that I had. He said, they did not give themselves to the work. In fact, one day, he says, I was coming around a corner and I, and I heard the two of them talking. So I paused for a second. And what I, what I heard them say to each other was this. One just came out of the bathroom, and he said to the other guy who was in seminary with him, he said, I just had the most wonderful time. Now, coming out of the bathroom, I don't, you know, whatever. But then he explained. He said, and this is what the boss heard him say. I read three chapters of the Gospel of John and was able to just be there for 30 minutes reflecting upon what it meant. Now, this wasn't his break time. This wasn't his lunch time. This young man had gone into the bathroom with his Bible to have a quiet time in the middle of the day when he should have been working. And he said, the guy said to Ken, he said, that frustrated me, but then what the next guy said frustrated me all the more. He said, oh, I can't wait to do the same thing in a few minutes when I can just steal away from my boss so he doesn't notice. And he looked at Kent Hughes and he said, if that's what Christianity is about, if that's what it does for a person, he's like, I want nothing to do with it. Kent had a great response. He said this. He said, sir, three chapters of John on the John on your time pleases neither God nor man. <laughs> I think that was an apt response. But what is he pointing to? Those men, by their behavior and by their actions, it did not help this boss to see the glories of the transformed new life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Instead, it, it hindered it. Paul comes and he writes this passage to bond servants. Those who are in a socioeconomic working condition. And he says to them, listen, you are new creations in Jesus Christ. Part of what that means is where God has you in your work Honor those who are in authority over you. Don't undercut them. Display to them a Christ-like character. And as you do that, here's why we do it. Number one, your God is glorified. His name is made much of. And you, you are giving a faithful testimony of the gospel that you say that you believe. Church, I pray that this would be so true of us that when we go into our workplace, maybe it's not going to be tomorrow, some of you have the day off. 
But that hearing a passage like this, it, it, it corrects our thinking. It makes us think rightly about the fact that no matter how difficult our boss is, no matter how difficult our situation is, God has not only called me, but enabled me to live as a new creation in that place to display God's character and to give testimony through my actions and through my work that the gospel I profess is actually true. And then Paul being Paul, inspired by God, look at what he says in verse 2 as he closes it out. He says, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's like, listen, I just told you about how you're to act in these situations where you have an unbelieving boss but listen, even if you have a believing boss, what that doesn't mean is that you can presume upon their grace and say, well, you're you know, a follower of Jesus Christ like me, so, so go easy on me. He says, no. If you are serving a brother in the Lord, he says, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach, Paul says, and urge these things. Paul, knowing the human heart, knows that even at times we will take advantage of others and their grace. And Paul says, lest you even think that, he says, let me just throw on this one more thing. Don't do it. Don't do it. Serve them even all the more faithfully because you are doing something that will benefit your brother, benefit your sister in the Lord. Church, this is how we think about our work. Church, this is how we engage our work to the praise and the glory of our Lord. And Paul says, if you need any more motivation than this, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, instead of writing just to Timothy himself, when he wrote to the church as a whole, in Ephesians 6.5, we read these words, and I close with this. He says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ." not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man. And here's the great promise, church, as we live this out, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. What a beautiful promise. Not only are we empowered to live these things out, not only are we called to live these things out, but as we do it, God says, it doesn't go without my notice and it doesn't go without my rewarding you for having lived in this way. May that encourage us as we go out. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, as we recognize in this place that you speak and you, Lord, communicate with your people down through the ages and the words that you wrote to the church in Ephesus through Timothy all these years ago, come to even us. While our situation is not exactly the same, Lord, nonetheless, we still work. We still strive. We are placed in, the, in positions under the authority of others. We have bosses, Lord, and, and let us see our work as a place where, Father, it's not just a place to earn money. It's not just a, a place to, Lord, provide financial security for ourselves. But may we see it as the place in which ultimately, Lord, we can bring glory to your name and a place in which through our behavior and through our actions, we can provide a testimony of gospel transformation. 
Lord, we look to do this to the praise and glory of your name, knowing that it is only through Christ and Christ alone that it is possible. So to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen and amen.